0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. The United States, the richest country on earth, has more poverty than any other advanced democracy. Why? That's the question that underscores Pulitzer Prize-winning sociologist Matthew Desmond's new book, Poverty by America. America is a country that purports equality as one of its highest values. Economic opportunity and the long touted American dream have driven millions to emigrate and settle here for centuries. In reality, however, gross economic inequality undergirds every facet of American life education, the criminal legal system, healthcare, and housing. Affordable housing is foundational to American life. Because America is rife with poverty, so too it's rife with housing inequality. This is Matthew's focus of study. Matthew's work at Princeton's eviction lab and his 2016 book, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, continues to shape the conversation about housing and poverty today. His new book, Poverty by America, takes his exploration one step further, seeking to examine and address the roots and responses to housing insecurity and its threat on American life. Today, we are running a conversation between Matthew Desmond and the ACLU's very own Sandra Park, a senior staff attorney for the Women's Rights Project, who also works on these issues. Together, they'll break down the complexities of American poverty and how poverty as a societal force threatens the accessibility of our civil rights and civil liberties. With that, I give you Sandra Park and Matthew Desmond.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Sandra Park. I'm a senior staff attorney in the ACLU Women's Rights Project. Today, I have the honor of welcoming and being in conversation with my friend and collaborator, Matthew Desmond. Matt is a professor of sociology at Princeton University and the founding director of The Eviction Lab, as well as the author of the incredible Pulitzer Prize-winning Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. Our conversation today will focus on his latest book, Poverty by America. Matt, uh, welcome to the ACLU.
2: Hey, Sandra, so good to see you.
1: Good to see you. So I was deeply inspired by your book. Uh, First, because it fundamentally challenges all of us to examine why and how we've accepted poverty in our communities. And second, because it shows us that we all have a role to play in ending poverty and that we can end poverty, Uh, that it's not just a worthy goal, but an achievable one. Uh, One of the people you write about early in the book, as well as in Evicted, is Crystal Mayberry. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about Crystal, um, why you wrote about her life and other people's lives in the book, um, and what that tells us about poverty in the United States and what that looks like today?
2: So I met Crystal when I was researching my last book, Evicted. And, you know, Crystal was born prematurely when her mom was stabbed um, during a robbery. Her mom and her dad were in an abusive relationship. Crystal was placed in foster care when she was five. Her mom wrestled with drug addiction, so did her mom's mom. She bounced around foster families. She lived with her aunt for five years, then her aunt returned her. And then the longest she lived anywhere was eight months. Um, Started growing up, you know, went to foster uh, homes, the group homes. Started fighting with the other girls in the group home. She picked up an assault charge. When she was 16, she stopped going to high school. When she was um, 18, she, she aged out of foster care, and she was on her own. And she received a uh, disability, but uh, that was, you know, $750 a month. And uh, rent basically took 77% of that check. And it wasn't long before she experienced her first eviction. It went on her record. You know, she kind of bounces between places, and, and she burns through her ties, and she ends up... Um, descending into real street homelessness and even prostitution she was never an early riser but she learned that was the best time to, to catch guys on their way to work in the mornings and I tell Crystal's story because I think it reminds us of what poverty is where it's not just an income level it's this exhausting piling on of problems and I think that easy solutions of poverty that ask someone like Crystal to just get a stable job or you know, just get the right education. It's kind of like asking her to have a different life. Yeah, and I think one
1: of the things obviously you point out is so much of our discussion of poverty is about demonizing poor people. Um, But some of the lines that struck me in how you describe poverty included, you know, poverty is the loss of liberty. Poverty is the feeling that your government is against you, not for you. Uh, Poverty is diminished life and personhood. And I think those are ways of understanding poverty that I would think appeal to folks across the political spectrum, but it's so contrary to the rhetoric we usually hear when we talk about poverty. Uh, and I wanted to hear more about your thoughts on that.
2: There's a lot of propaganda out there about poverty, and we don't have to necessarily believe propaganda for it to do things, but it organizes us. It shapes our conversation, right? Um, or kills a conversation. And I think that many of us who are trying to fight poverty, are trying to, to fight it in the courts or develop anti-poverty policy, I think that we have to start controlling the terms of the debate. And so I think that means, for me, shifting the aperture away from from poor families and poor communities to, uh, to us, to a lot of us, who are um, living our lives often unwittingly in a way that, that contributes to poverty in our midst. One thing that the book tries to do is, is argue for, for poverty abolitionism and to kind of ask us to, to accept that as an identity, you know, and as a, as a political project, but as a personal one, too. And it, it has a way of, I hope, you know, making these old myths and these kind of cruel rhetoric about the poor seem very, like, retrograded, uncool, and I think that's important because it's easier to change norms than beliefs. And I think that as more of us live and commit ourselves to poverty abolitionism, we can start turning, you know, those old stories into boring stories.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I do feel like the stories have had so much resonance, you know, over time in our society. And And so I was very taken with the framework that you presented of poverty abolitionism. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that and why you chose to use that framework?
2: I think I chose it for its ambition, you know? I mean, like other abolitionist movements, uh, this one sees poverty not as like a minor social ill or like an inevitability of American capitalism, but as an abomination, like something we shouldn't tolerate. And... It shares with other abolitionist movements, like the movement to abolish slavery or the prison, this conviction that profiting from someone else's pain is all corrupting, right? It corrupts all of us. You know, we can shop and invest differently. We can talk about taxes differently. We can fight against exploitation, even if we benefit from that exploitation. Uh, a poverty abolitionist uh, rejects segregation, You know, and fights for open communities. And that doesn't just mean, you know, voting for the right person, you know, or signing the right petition. It also means doing the hard work of going down to the zoning board meeting at eight o'clock at night and standing up and saying, no, we should build this in our community. Part of that political role is for us, many of us, to start taking ownership over this problem in a way that I don't I don't think is is very popular right now.
1: And one of your insights, I think, is that Poor folks are more likely to understand how they benefit from the government, um, while those who are middle and upper class do not. But we are all on the dole. And I think what's uncomfortable about your argument is that your vision calls for sacrifices from all of us, right? It's not just about, you know, maybe raising taxes for uber-wealthy people. And so I wanted to hear you talk more about, you know, the significant ways that folks who are, you know, the, the large middle, and there are lots of folks who may think they're in the middle and they're actually not in the middle, right? Um, But um, how they benefit from the government and how do we get people on board with connecting the dots between those benefits and the perpetuation of poverty more broadly?
2: So we have this unbalanced welfare state where we give the most to people that need it the least. So let's put a a few numbers on this. So if you get a tax break because you own a home, you could deduct the interest from your mortgage on your tax bill, or the government can send you a check. It's the same difference. And so if you add up all those things, you know, the average family in the bottom 20% of the income distribution, our poorest families, they receive about $26,000 a year from the government. And the average family in the top 20%, our richest families, they receive about $35,000 a year from the government. So that's a 40% difference almost. That's what I'm talking about. We're talking about imbalance. And then we have like the audacity, right, to like look at a program that would reduce child poverty or make sure we all have access to a doctor. And, you know, we say, oh, how could we afford this? You know, as if the answer wasn't staring us straight in the face, we could afford it if the richest among us took less from the government. You know, we could afford it if the country did more to fight poverty than to guard fortunes. I think that I have a duty as a poverty abolitionist to start talking about the fact that last year, the country spent $190 billion on homeowner tax subsidies and only $53 billion on direct housing assistance to the needy. And if we didn't have a deep eviction and homelessness crisis, I wouldn't lose that much sleep over it. But we do. And so I think this is a way we have to start asking for a rebalancing. And I think that language, for me anyways, It's a bit more effective than redistribution, which to me signals the government taking something that's yours.
1: So it's both how the government has allocated resources, um, but then there are lots of practices that are out there that exploit the poor, um, including, you know, practices that I think all of us are in some ways complicit in, in terms of um, some of the things that you've talked about already, you know, the the way the labor market works or how, um, how we consume or purchase things. Um, one example that I wanted to hear more about from you was the rental housing market.
2: So exploitation is a, a morally charged word for a lot of folks. And I think like everyone here has probably been exploited in some way at some part of their life. But for the poor, this is a daily experience. And, you know, technically, exploitation can be measured in the labor market when you're not getting paid uh, uh, your fair share based on what you produce. And it can be measured in a consumption market, like a housing market, by saying you're overpaying for something that's not worth that. And um, that happens when you don't have any choice and someone's got you over a barrel. And that's the situation for the American poor in the rental market. Right, They're shut out of home ownership, not because they can't afford a mortgage, just because banks aren't interested in doing business with uh, with the poor, even if they have sterling credit, because they're you know, they not interested in giving out loans for $50,000, $75,000 homes in East St. Louis. So the ho- housing market is shut off to them. And often affordable housing is shut off too, right? We're only one in four families who qualify for any kind of rental assistance receive it. And the waiting list for public housing in our biggest cities stretches on like, through years and even through decades, right? So you got one choice. You got to rent from a landlord in a private market, and you got to give most of your income to rent and utility costs, which is the typical family below the poverty line who's renting today. Do they have to pay that much for landlords to get a fair rate of return? Is that just the cost of doing business in poor neighborhoods? And I started getting kind of Obsessed with this question when I moved to Milwaukee because I moved into a mobile home park. And I was like, why would you buy a mobile home park? So I started looking at data that would allow me to answer that question. And it turns out we have data. The census actually has a national database of, of landlords. And we got access to those data. We we crunched the numbers and we learned that landlords in poor neighborhoods don't just make more than landlords in rich neighborhoods. They make double. They make double. And the reason is pretty simple. Your operating costs are a lot lower, especially your mortgage burden and your tax bill. But rent isn't that much lower, actually. And that's the stuff of exploitation. And I think that that actually opens up different legal and policy implications than if we only understand the housing crisis as like a bloodless result of supply and demand. It's also the result of um, just people getting squeezed because they don't have a lot of choice.
1: Mm -hmm. And there's certainly an overlay of segregation on that, right, in terms of how landlords can operate.
2: Yeah. So if you think of just the experiences of African-American families, right, it's this systematic dispossession of those families from the land over and over again, from slavery to sharecropping to the Great Migration and the ghettoization to contract buying and exploitation, all the way up to the subprime crisis, right, where we know from the lawsuits against Wells Fargo and others that, you know, black and brown communities were targeted by predatory lenders. And that's, that's resulted in this situation where most black families and most Latino families as well are renters, right? They're disproportionately exposed to exploitation in the rental market and the eviction crisis, as most white families are homeowners. And they are eligible for one of the sweetest cutouts in the tax code and, uh, and are buffered often, from these, the rental crisis. And so I think that it's just impossible to, to talk about these things without talking about uh, racial legacies and current racial discrimination. Uh, and the eviction data bear this out, right? So Black renters are twice as likely to be threatened with eviction than white, right, white renters in the country too. Yeah, I think um,
1: just sticking on this, I mean, one of the things that you've been so responsible for is just, you know, really enriching our understanding of evictions through data. And um, when Eviction Lab was created, there really had been such a huge dearth of uh, data on evictions. But yeah, I would love to hear more about what's what's happening at Eviction Lab.
2: There's this line in the new book where I, um, it's I borrow it from Tommy Orange, the novelist, where he says, you know, it's like these kids are jumping out of the windows of burning buildings, falling to their deaths, and we think that the problem is that they're jumping. And, you know, when I read that, I was like, man, that's, that's the American poverty debate. And it's American social science, you know? And if you ask me, like, what does the best data that we have say about why people get evicted? I would draw on that data and I'd say, well, you know, race really matters. Uh, gender matters. Women get evicted at high rates than kids. Or men. Kids matter. If you live with kids, your, your odds of eviction go up. But see how the data are making us think like that, right, in individual terms? Like, people aren't evicting themselves, you know? And so we at the Eviction Lab now are obsessed with the fire. You know, like, we're obsessed with, like, who lit the fire? Who's warming their hands by it? So that means we're asking questions like, who does all the evictions in a city? Like in Tucson, uh, the top 100 buildings evict uh, three-fifths of the city, you know, and the the rest of the evictions are spread over thousands and thousands of buildings. So suddenly, suddenly you're asking, who are these guys, right? Is that 100 people or is that like 10 people? You know, what is it? We're obsessed with who owns our cities. We don't know. We don't know who owns Baltimore or D.C. or Houston. We should, you know, because of LLC and corporate shell um, uh, laws, really. And so we're trying to break through those those shells and get a sense of, of ownership of the city and and what that might mean for different kind of policies and legal strategies, and we're very obsessed with the what dorks like me call the political economy of the rental market. How much are folks making? You know, what are the returns for landlords in West Philly? Um, you know, uh, are those returns uh, reasonable or justified? Uh, so we're kind of we're kind of obsessed right now with questions about ownership. Uh, in uh, and kind of individual actors uh, in the rental market that are that are not the tenants, that are the owners, yeah.
1: Thank you for that. Uh, so I want to move us toward talking about how we can and will end poverty and your vision for that. You know, one of the success stories you point out in the book is the response to the pandemic at the federal level, where we saw... Measures for enhanced unemployment insurance, expanded child tax credits, um, and rental assistance. Speaking of rental housing. Um, and you know, I think it was a time when we all accepted that people's dire economic situations were not their fault, you know, that we were dealing with a global pandemic. And thinking about rental assistance. What struck me in the book was you write about how it was a success, um, but not recognized as such. And I'd love to hear you talk about that and the consequences of that.
2: Sure. So, you know, we had this unique designation in America to have like an eviction crisis, like immediately when the pandemic hit. And advocates started asking for a moratorium, you know, and they got laughed out of the room by other advocates, you know, by by um, allies, And then one state did it, another state did it, and pretty soon we had a CDC moratorium under the Trump administration. You know, it lasted almost a year. And one study out of Duke showed that it decreased COVID-related deaths by about 11%, which is tens of thousands of lives saved. Um, But of course, then the question is like, well, the the rent bills added up. You know, what's going to happen? So the government... Uh, rolls out emergency rental assistance. It's $46.5 billion allocation, which is like double HUD's budget, right? It's huge. It's huge. And it's like the biggest thing the federal government has done in the lives of the renting families since like the invention of public housing, I think. And, um, But it turns out you can't drop $46 billion from a plane, right? You got to create all these distribution channels. And some states did it really fast and well, and other states did not. And when that was happening... Everyone was complaining about it. It reduced evictions to the lowest they've ever been on record, ever, months and months and months after the moratorium. And all these different markets, New York, Albuquerque, all these different markets, evictions super low. And no one said anything. <laughs> you know, we were just so quiet. We were so quiet. And um, I think that the question of why we were so quiet I, is something I'm trying to work out. And I'm, I'm really re- resisting easy answers. A lot of times you get together with folks and they'll say, well, the Democrats have a marketing problem. And it's like, well, how, how did you learn about your secret information that you have? You know, you're the same thing way everyone else does. And so I think there's a deeper like spiritual problem in a way, especially among progressive America, where we're really good at critique and really bad at celebration. The Biden administration deserves a heck of a lot of credit. Uh, for what they did in the lives of renting families, and um, and we allowed it to dissipate, right? We allowed those programs to expire. Why weren't we demanding this be our new normal? And I think I don't think we have an answer to that question, just yet. Yeah, I
1: mean, I think there was something about you know both the amazement that it happened, and then you know to the extent it was, it felt tied to the pandemic. And of course, the pandemic in many ways is ongoing. But you know, I, I think I think that that's a really important question what's driving our um, reluctance to adopt measures that work. But I want i guess I'd love to hear more about your thoughts on that polarization and how that feeds into the way we currently deal with poverty.
2: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think there's two kinds of polarization. One is the idea, the extent to which the American public is polarized from itself. And I think on that level, uh, there's a lot of optimism and hope actually, right? Most Americans want a higher minimum wage. Most Americans don't think the rich are paying their fair share of taxes. They're right. Most Democrats and most Republicans now, you know, believe that poverty is a result of unfair circumstances, not a moral failing or mistakes, which is interesting. It's sea change. And so, I think on the ground level, there's a lot of, of broad agreement on issues of economic justice, but at the top level, like among our policymakers, that's when you see these, this this drastic polarization. I think that one of the things that's very surprising to me about the polarization in Washington is the degree to which the Republicans have become quite quite blatant about um, defunding the IRS, you know, turning away from tax fairness and and plain, um, enforcement. You know, the chair of the IRS last year went in front of Congress and estimated that they, that we lose a trillion dollars a year, a trillion, in tax evasion and avoidance, right? We have to have fair tax enforcement for us to get really serious and ambitious about ending poverty, I feel.
1: So how do we evaluate which policies have the potential to end poverty? Um, one of the things, frameworks you talked about is, that too often we may be supporting policies that accommodate poverty rather than disrupting it. Uh, and two of the examples you give, which you know, I'll say I found a little surprising, um, were the in, earned income tax credit um, and Section 8 housing vouchers as policies that might, you know, that have been incredibly helpful for many poor people for many years, um, but are more in the camp of accommodating poverty rather than disrupting it. Uh, so would love to hear more about your benchmarks for which policy interventions will really get us toward disrupting and dismantling poverty.
2: As you know, I've been stumping for expansion of housing vouchers for years and years and years. Uh, I think the evidence about the effectiveness of housing vouchers is clear and irrefutable. Um, I've been with families when they received housing vouchers and they drop to their knees and cry, you know. So I, I know the, the impact that these have. So if you ask me point blank, would you support expanding housing vouchers? I would say yes, absolutely. Would you support expanding the earned rate? And I'd say yes. As we've expanded these programs over the years, poverty has been persistent. And, you know, housing vouchers are lifesavers for families that, that receive them, but they do not address the root cause of the housing crisis the rising rents, And there's, there's some evidence that they contribute a bit to it. And in fact, there's some evidence that it depresses wages, which makes sense because the EITC is something like a subsidy for, for employers. We have to start advocating for and pushing for longer-term solutions that really do try to address exportation, especially in the labor and the, and the housing markets. So the labor market, you know, that's things like making organizing easier, making sure um, employers follow... Uh, labor law, which I know the ECLU uh, does day in and day out, uh, fighting for things like sectorial bargaining so we can actually organize entire sectors instead of going one warehouse at a time. Things like that, I think, really matter for, for driving up wages in a per- permanent way. And in the housing market, I'm you know, it's about expanding choice. And I think that could be done by building up more social housing or public housing, making inroads to homeownership for low-income families, uh, Deepening our investment in land banks and community trusts.
1: Can you uh, share some of the anti-poverty advocacy efforts you know happening in a in a community or two that's um, most inspiring you?
2: I think there's stuff going on around the country that's really inspiring. It's just not big enough. It's not big enough. And I think that if you look at um, groups like Community Change or Poor People's Campaign. Or uh, the working families party at the national level, I love what they're doing uh, with respect to getting folks from low income uh, communities to run for office you know, and um, I love the idea of what Reverend Barbara calls this fusion politics, really kind of uniting folks across red and blue lines to to fight for poverty together. Um, I think uh, One Fair Wage, the, you know, the movement to end tipped wages, subminimum wage, is really smart. And I think that this new labor movement, like the Not Your Fathers, finally multiracial, often woman-led labor movement that's uh, emerging in places like the uh, uh, SEIU, is doing incredibly sophisticated organizing around the country, um, and then I think the new the new housing movement that's that's bubbling up is really inspiring. and I don't think we've seen this level of housing activism like since the Great Depression. You'll remember like the biggest news story before George Floyd's murder was about the cancel of the rent campaign, which was really gaining steam. And we're seeing tactics like people chaining themselves to to eviction court and you know and 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 blocking sheriff blockades and, and, and it's and it's growing in a way. So it's interesting for me. I mean, when Evicta came out, I would get questions about, like, rent control and rent stabilization. And they'd be, like, really seen as, like, really far out there questions. And now they're, like, on ballots, you know, in some states. So I think that um, that's the result, you know, of organizing around the country, too.
1: Mm -hmm. And how do we support them and make them bigger? I mean, is it a question of people power in terms of, you know, your your first statement that you're just worried about the scale of them. Um, is it, you know, thinking about um, funding and philanthropy and other types of, you know, um, grants and other money flowing to some of these efforts or recognition of their importance um, and a prioritization of anti-poverty work specifically?
2: I think so. And I think you're seeing the shift in philanthropy. Um, where you're seeing major foundations really start taking an interest in groups that they that often um you know weren't you know top of mind for for major funders and i think that you're seeing that change and i think the book's ultimate goal is to really you know draw readers into the anti-poverty movement and um we launched this website with the book called endpovertyusa.org and it features all these anti-poverty groups around the country and i hope readers are connecting to that and 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 joining up and i d- i just do think it's a people power situation you know uh, contributing to that movement can be lived out by you know signing up and showing up but also by like what are we buying you know are we are we expressing our values for economic justice in our consumer choices in our investment decisions, in what our universities are invested in? Are we flexing our little influence wherever we have it on behalf of low-income families and poverty abolitionism? Are we we trying to break the common sense about how we talk about taxes? Are we just like letting it go when the guy at the water cooler is like, oh my God, taxes, you know? And are we showing up to those zoning board meetings, you know, standing up and saying, look, I refuse to deny those kids opportunities my kids get by living here. So I think those those actions aren't enough in themselves. And we all know that. But like without those actions, I can't see a world where there's enough political will that builds that puts enough upward pressure on political and corporate elites to get the kind of policies that we need to abolish poverty.
1: Thank you so much again. Uh, I really appreciate it. And it was, a, it was really rewarding to hear from you.
2: No, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, Sandra. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate your time.
0: Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. At Liberty is a production of the ACLU, produced by me, Kendall Seesmeyer, and Vanessa Handy. This episode was edited by Matt Boynton. Lila Sheridan is our intern. Until next week, stay strong.